This is the Matt Townsend Show. I would suggest you forge more character. Your guide on the side. Uh, it's, it's these interruptions that are there to teach you the lessons we need to live. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. On BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. I'm Leanna Tan. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I was thinking the other day about a conversation I had with a coworker a while back. And she was talking about a story that she had read about this man who was sitting at a restaurant and he overheard another person speaking a different language. And he got so mad that he got up and threw his water on this person and told them to speak the language of the community that they lived in. And I was just horrified when I heard this. It's so ridiculous that people can be so cruel to others who aren't like them. I feel like this is a big issue that shows up more and more in different facets of life, and it leads to a lot of problems, people expecting everyone to be just like themselves. And it's just not going to happen because everyone is different. I think that there needs to be a lot more acceptance and love in the world, acceptance for other people and acceptance for yourself and for your own obstacles and trials. And I think this starts in the home. So I decided to dedicate this entire episode to just that, acceptance. I've got a couple of episodes with beautiful message that I'm going to play back for you. The first one is with Andrew Solomon, who, among many other things, wrote an award-winning book about how parents can accept their children when they don't turn out exactly like them. The spirit of what you teach, I I could not love more this idea that um, we all— come, I guess, to this world with a different, just a different set of abilities, skills, insights, and yet nonetheless, we're all very special and all need to be accepted. Absolutely. That was really the message of the book. It was trying to look at what happened when there were children who were in some way different from their parents and how parents go on a journey to acceptance. And I felt it was important to sort out the difference between love, which ideally is always there from the beginning, and acceptance, which is a process and you have to achieve it. I love it. So love should be there kind of always. And then acceptance is the idea that we it's, it's kind of something we need to learn and grow to learn. Absolutely. We get to know our children. They're not quite who we expected. We have to figure out how we're going to make sense of that. Well, and you even bring up the fact that we all bring these differences, but the differences, I mean, we all think, no, my kids are just like me. You know, they're going to have the same religious beliefs. They're going to be exactly like me. But the reality is the differences can be huge from, you know, deaf children who actually have a disability to just people that are different, that just have a different... I mean, what if you're a Democrat and you have a Republican child? (laughs) Heaven forbid. Exactly. Um, And my objective was really to try to look at cases of dramatic difference, like hearing families of deaf children and families of children with Down syndrome, families of musical prodigies who are also quite overwhelmed, but to illuminate the fact that I have yet to meet any parent who hasn't occasionally looked at his child (laughs) and wondered where he came from. I also like that you balanced, you know, kind of the academic research side along with just the great spirit of the book. Well, I really felt that what I wanted to describe had to be told in stories. I mean, the book has some statistics here and there, but I felt like statistics always pretend to be more accurate, Mm -hmm. but they don't really tell you what's going on. 
and in getting close to a lot of the families I wrote about, I interviewed about 300 families in the course of working on the book. Wow. I felt like those family stories really conveyed the emotional progress that people made. Powerful. Talk about, and one of the things you mentioned really on the first page of your book is you clarify the difference between reproduction and production. What, what, do you, what, what is that all about? The opening line of the book is, there is no such thing as reproduction. And I think that a lot of people, when they set out to have kids, think what they're doing is producing some kind of extension of themselves. <laughs> yeah. They assume their kids are going to be, you know, you have two people, you mix them together, and this is what you get um, as the mixed up thing. And what I said is, children from the minute they arrive are their own people, and they might be like you in some ways, and they probably won't be like you in all ways, and they may not be much like you at all. And you have to go into having kids with that awareness and not go in with the illusion that you're just making another one of yourself. I mean, reproduction, really, if you're reproducing, you're reproducing you, which honestly may not be a good thing, (laughs) right? (laughs) Production may be a better approach that we're going to just produce something new, something something special. It's powerful. Exactly. Um, Now, get into some of the differences. If you you, you talk to 300 families, and I mean, really, the differences you were looking at are kind of more of the, uh, they're more very tangible, extreme differences. Give us just a taste of some of the families you interviewed. Well, I started off with um, the families of deaf children because I really believe that deafness exists as a culture. And I met families whose children had sign language as their primary means of communication, some families who then learned sign language, some families who didn't. Then I looked at families of dwarfs. I looked at how they dealt with the fact that they had a child who was a dwarf. Most dwarfism is a randomly occurring genetic mutation, mm. and most dwarfs are born to parents of average height. Um, I looked at people who are transgender and how families deal with that. As I said, I looked at prodigies. I looked at um, people with schizophrenia. I looked at quite a range of things. And what I found was that each of these families, as they described their situation, was experiencing it as unique. Mm. And to some extent felt they had an affiliation with other people dealing with the same exact uh, syndrome that they were dealing with. But I found that actually parents of children with autism and parents of children who committed crimes, which is another one of my sections, and families of prodigies all had quite a lot in common. They They were all dealing with children who weren't what they were after when they decided to have kids, and they all had to figure out how to love their children. That's powerful. And I guess you also saw examples of parents that, I guess, couldn't make that jump. They, they, They struggled making the jump. I mean, it seems like love would be so natural. But maybe that is the jump to acceptance. Well, a lot of people struggled with the jump because I think the jump is a challenge. I think it's 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 a jump is what it is. Yeah. And um, a lot of the families then ended up being really grateful for lives they would have done anything to avoid. That was kind of the most frequent narrative. We were horrified by this, and then we came to accept it, and ultimately we came to celebrate it, and we love our child for who our child is. There was a lot of that. But there are also people in the book who felt otherwise. There's one woman I wrote about at some length who had a baby and just felt that she couldn't deal with having a child with such severe disabilities and gave her up for adoption. Hmm. She's had a lot of anxieties and regrets associated with that, but she also feels that it was the right decision. And there's one mother in the autism chapter who said, I have these children and I love them and I do what I need to for them, but if I had it to do over, I wouldn't have them. And I think anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. And I really wanted to balance the narrative and to have both stories in there. The book is mostly about people who found meaning, partly because I think that's more useful 
for people to understand, and partly because people who found meaning are a lot more interested in talking to a journalist about it than right. people who've rejected their own children. But both narratives are there. Did um, it seems like so? One of the things that they it, it was more about the fear or the the sadness of what they could have been that really that they have to overcome is that that feeling of oh. It should have been more normal or whatever. The, the rhetoric that you hear a lot is you have to mourn the death of the imagined child. And I think that's a little melodramatic. Yeah. But I think it is true that people really had an idea, we're going to have a kid and, you know, I don't know, she's going to be a cheerleader, um, he's going to be a doctor, she's going to become the first woman president, whatever it is that they imagine for their kid. And they have to shift, quite possibly, all of those expectations, sometimes very profoundly. And it's a trauma. It's a trauma making that shift. But I found a lot of people came out on the other side of it and said that they were glad of where they had gotten to. They said, not only do I feel I love the child I have, but I feel having a child who is different in these ways has given me a richer engagement with humanity and has made me a better person than I'd be otherwise. Oh, yeah. You know, there was one family who have a child with Down syndrome um, who got very involved in changing the way educational services are delivered to people with Down syndrome. Um, and it really became their lives. And I said, do you regret it? Do you wish he didn't have Down syndrome? And the boy's father said, well, for our son, David, I wish he didn't have it because for David, it's a difficult way to be in the world and I'd like him to have an easier life. But if we took away all the Down syndrome in the world, it would be a real loss. Mm. And his mother said, I agree, I'd like to give our son an easier life. But speaking for myself, well, I would never have believed I could say this 25 years ago when he was born. Speaking for myself, it's made me so much more purposeful and given me so much more of an engaged life than I would ever otherwise have had. That speaking for myself, I wouldn't give up these experiences for anything in the world. Powerful. Wow. Um, did, did you notice a difference? It seems like, I mean, if somebody's body was seemingly normal and they were battling with sexuality, it might seem like that would be a different kind of test for a family than somebody if they were battling something that was obviously physical like dwarfism. Did you notice a difference? Well, I started off from the position that my insight into all of this comes from the fact that I am the gay child of straight parents. And as the gay child of straight parents, I dealt with this problem that I had a fundamental identity that was somewhat alien to my family. And it took them a while to accept me. I'm glad to say we all got there, but it took a little while to accept me. And I think when I was growing up, I sometimes felt those deficits in acceptance as deficits in love. And now having interviewed all these families, I feel like actually my family always loved me and they didn't take as long to accept me as some people's families do and it sort of gave me a feeling of peace about all of that oh that's powerful I then wanted to um, work from the idea that every group that gains some degree of recognition tends to associate itself with the groups that have gone before. So the civil rights movement for black Americans drew on the language of the women's suffrage movement. And the um, gay rights movement has drawn on the language of the civil rights movement. And I wanted to say, okay, I can talk about how our struggle has been similar to the struggle of African Americans, but I can also reach in the other direction to the next movement that coming along. Yeah. And so far as I'm concerned, that's the movement of embracing difference in all its variety, including disability. And I thought, we really need to reach our hand across to those people and to help those people to achieve a sense of self-actualization, self-realization, self-confidence, um, and to achieve a, a position of being understood and recognized and um, acknowledged in our society as a whole. Totally. I mean, it's such a... Uh 
It really is such a great work because I guess when it comes right down to it, this idea that so many people in so many different categories could sit there and actually, because they're not being accepted, could feel unloved. I mean, it's that's dramatic. I mean, that is that is a lot of people potentially that that are out there alone. It is a lot of people who are out there alone. And one of the things people said to me when I, I heard people tell me their stories, you know, I went and talked to them. I asked them to remember all of the difficulties they'd been through. And sometimes I would say to the people I was interviewing, why did you decide to tell me your story? It's clearly very difficult for you to talk about. What made you think you wanted to describe it? And time and time again, people said, I felt so alone in these experiences. And if my telling my story will help someone else to feel less alone the next time, then it was all worth it. Uh powerful. We are going to take a break. We're talking with Andrew Solomon. Uh, from the, He's the author of from Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. Really, go check out his, uh, his website, his blog site there, andrewsolomon.com. Powerful insight into this book. He's got wonderful videos there as well from a lot of the, the, the voices from his book, the people that he had interviewed, and um, just a wonderful opportunity to learn and to feel the power of love, actually converting it into something um, called acceptance and opening up ourselves to understanding others. We're going to take a break. We'll be right back right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're listening to an interview with Matt and Andrew Solomon, and he was talking about the difference between love and acceptance. Love is unconditional, but it's not enough just to love your kids or your family members, but you need to accept them as well. And acceptance takes work and it takes time. It's a process. So let's continue listening to this interview where he teaches the difference between vertical and horizontal identity traits and how understanding those can lead to more acceptance for your own situation and coming to terms with who your child is, even if they aren't exactly like you. He's the winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award. He's also the author of The Noonday Demon, an Atlas of Depression, which was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, finalist with that book and a winner of the 2001 National Book Award. Andrew lectures in in psychiatry at Cornell University, and his journalism appears frequently in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The New York Magazine, and uh, Newsweek as well. You can find more information about him at andrewsolomon.com. Highly suggest you go check out his site there and also start looking to some of the videos. He's got videos of some of the people, the voices from, I guess, the people that you interviewed, Andrew, during your writing of that book. Yeah, I re-interviewed some of them on video. It's beautiful. And Thank you. and the whole purpose of your book though is is really to start to to just say look, you're not here to have kids to make an extension of you per se as much as it is that these are independent beings that we should love and appreciate and accept regardless of some of their their differences. Exactly. Beautiful. So really, 
really to look at the way in which parents who are confronted with a child who's dramatically different from them in some way, who has an identity different from the parent's identity, how do they come to terms with that, and how do they manage to be the best parents they can be to those kids, and how do they manage to have the best lives they can as parents of such kids? Hmm. Is there, I mean, I guess it seems like it's it's probably a normal expectation for parents to kind of have expectations of their child, right? I mean, it's not like it's not like we're asking them to not have expectations. That's a normal parental thing, right? Well, look, there's a, a drama in all parenthood, which is that you have a kid and you change your kid. You educate him, you teach him to brush his teeth, you try to teach him a sense of morals and values, you communicate all the things you think are important. So part of parenting is changing your kid. You teach him some manners, hopefully. Right. Um, and then there are qualities in your child which you really need to accept and uh, to celebrate and to say, this is my child, he's not exactly like me or she's not exactly like me, but I'm going to see this child for the person he or she is and really manage to make him feel good about being himself. And what is the line between the things that you change and the things that you accept? Some things you obviously have to accept. You know, your child has been born with brown eyes, you can't make their eyes yeah. blue. And there are other things that you obviously need to change. If your child sort of dribbles down his front the whole time, you teach him to eat properly. But there's an awful lot of stuff where it's not so clear. Should I change it or should I accept and celebrate it? And I was interested in that middle territory. And how is it that parents who have got children who are different in some way figure out these are the things I'm going to correct and these are the things that I'm going to embrace? Because it seems like if you spend your whole life trying to correct a child on something that you just need to be accepting – you're just prolonging your acceptance, right? I mean, it's like I've seen that with parents when they finally just accept their child's gay or they finally accept that their child has um, autism. I've seen parents so struggle. They don't want that. They don't want that. And um, But there's something powerful, I guess, when you can differentiate what we can change and what we can't. And I think that it results in a better life for both the child yeah. and the parent. I mean, one mother of a child with autism, for instance, said to me, um, about her daughter, she said, Cece is the Zen lesson. Why does Cece have autism? Because Cece has autism. And what is it like to be Cece? Being Cece, because no one else is and will never know what it's like. It is what it is. It's not anything else. And maybe you'll never change it. And maybe you should stop trying. Wow. I mean, that is the Zen lesson. <laughs> yes. That is, I mean, and that's power in everything. And it's funny what we can become when we finally quit trying to change it. Yeah. We can just now just, you keep using the word celebrate, which I love that word, which is different than just tolerate. We don't right. want to just tolerate they're different. Actually, when you finally accept it, you, you, you sell things that we celebrate, we look forward to. And then some of the time you celebrate it for a while and then it settles in and you think to yourself, well, okay, so my daughter is a dwarf, um, or my son is gay, or um, my uh, beloved child is, um, has Down syndrome, and you stop thinking about it as being the sole defining sense yeah. fact about them all the time. Yep. You've done your celebrating, you've achieved real acceptance, which often comes when it just isn't at the forefront of your mind yeah, anymore. It's not how you this define your it. kid. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, it's, we, every parent does that to some degree. Oh, yeah, this is my, this is my, you know, math scholar. This is my four O student. This is the athlete. We we always kind of put them in some category versus just eventually when we could settle in and make them 
They're just our child. They're our baby. Yeah. Uh, tell me, explain this vertical versus horizontal identity. It seems like a fascinating idea. Oh, thank you. The idea is that there are some identities that are passed down from parent to child and that families therefore have in common. So one's ethnicity is a vertical identity, one's um, nationality, one's language in general, often one's religion. These are things that you grow up with and um, your parents help to reinforce them in you. So you can argue that it's difficult in the United States, as it's currently constructed, to be a member of a racial minority or a religious minority. Right. And yet, nonetheless, nobody is trying to cure racial or religious minorities because the family is there and it reinforces and it teaches the kids to have a feeling of pride in who they are. Powerful. Then there are these horizontal identities, which are called horizontal because you don't learn them from your parents or from the older generation. You learn them from your peers. So being gay, being deaf, being autistic, being transgender, these are all areas in which you have a quality that is alien to your parents. Hmm. Your parents probably have spent a certain amount of time trying to change it. <laughs> and you eventually find other people who are like you and discover some sense of identity with those other people. And it comes as this great liberation, maybe when you're an adolescent, maybe a little later on. So the, you, it, it actually creates a community for you with with like-minded or like-experiencing people that um, that's something you didn't have from your parents. Exactly. Wow. That, so what's the power of that? Like, it seems like, like you said, it's liberating, it's freeing. It also seems like you, you finally are you. You finally are free to be you, yeah. um, I think. Not to sound all free to be you and me. But, yeah, right. Um, no, but, you're, but you're all finally... of a sudden you're no longer just this oddity that's needing to be fixed. You're now a dwarf with fellow dwarves. I mean, how powerful. And you need to have both. I mean, this is one of the things that gets debated all the time. Should children who have got differences of various kinds be educated separately? And I feel like if you've got a child who has, for example, intellectual disabilities, that child should spend some of his school time in a classroom with other kids Mm. who don't have those disabilities because those are the real world, and it's important for the kids to engage with the real world. It's important for the disabled kid, and it's also, frankly, important for the non-disabled kids to understand and recognize on a daily basis the humanity of someone whose mind doesn't work the way yeah. theirs does. But if you take the disabled kid and he doesn't ever meet any other disabled kids, and he never sees anyone else who's in his situation, he's going to be lonely because he's different from the other kids, and he isn't going to be best friends with them, even if they're nice to him. And so, right. You need to balance the two things. You need to exist in the larger world, and you need to exist in a community of people who have the same condition you have. Well, and that's the, the balance that people are always trying to find. Well, and honestly, everyone needs that, right? I mean, I need to be able to understand my own community, but also be out in, a, in another, you know, out in the world where I can hear other points of view, other ideas. Every human being needs that kind of that tension that goes between the two identities. 100% right. Perfect. We're talking with Andrew Solomon, uh, author of the book Far From the Tree, Parents, Children, and the Search for Identity. We're going to take a break, come on back, and uh, learn even more about how to uh, balance these differences in a way that we can actually create a beautiful feeling of acceptance. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio.
Thanks for sticking with us. I'm Leanna Tan, and this is The Matt Townsend Show. I love what Matt and Andrew talked about in the last segment, that kids aren't just an extension of you or one of your appendages. Each one has their own identity and their own opinions, and each one is wired uniquely. So instead of trying to fight back and force change, learn to accept them. And acceptance takes a lot of patience and time and effort, but once you accept them, then you can celebrate those differences and challenges in your own life rather than resenting or denying them. In this last part, Andrew talks a little bit more about how parents can do just that, how they can understand their kids who are different from themselves. It seems like like you were talking about this vertical versus horizontal. So vertical identity are the things that we kind of – the traits were handed down from our parents that make us like them. Um, you know, our gene pool, we, we've got that where we are what we are. Um, some of the things that get handed down, we aren't like our parents. And that could be, you know, sexuality issues, um, certain mental disorders, blindness, dwarfism. Some of the other things are the, the groupings that you've, you've worked with. Help me understand one thing because you call those the identities. But, I mean, what is – what what does this do to our identity when I'm not like my parents, I have something that's different, and then I go to my group of people that have the same difference? Is my social identity more tied then to the horizontal group of people that are like me, or 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 can I stay also connected to both? Where does the identity, social identity, come from? Well, I think ideally it comes from both. Um... And I think there are many people who uh, ultimately want to be able to, to pull those worlds together. So I was very struck when I worked with deaf kids by how different the experience was for the deaf kids who primarily communicated in sign and whose families had learned sign. Hmm. And one mother said to me, we had two choices. We could try to get him to talk, in which case communication would always be difficult for him, or we could try to learn sign, in which case communication would always be difficult for us. She said, we're the parents and he's the kid. Mm. And we're the ones who need to take on the difficulty. And that's what we decided to do. So I think it's great when the parents are actually able to reach out. And I think almost all of the conditions I talked about and many other conditions I didn't talk about, you can think of as an illness or you can think of as an identity. And one of those shouldn't erase the other. It's just that we have a hard time seeing them both at the same time. But you can say the downside of something is the illness side of it. And... The richer part of it is the identity part of it, and all of these syndromes can be described in both ways. Powerful. And it's, uh, like you say, I mean, this knowledge of understanding it as an illness or an identity, it, it really is good for both the the person carrying the illness or identity as, as well as the parents. As soon as the parents can get to a point of accepting it, um, it changes them, it changes the child, it changes everyone involved. It does. And, you know, it's great for kids. I mean, we all want to be accepted by our parents. We, none of us want to feel like we're basically a disappointment to our parents. And so I think parents who are really loving have ultimately to say, okay, I wouldn't have set out to have a child who had schizophrenia. I mean, that to me is one of the most thankless of all of these conditions. It's nothing that I would ever have wanted. But look, that's what I have, and that's what I got. And, I mean, as one mother as someone with schizophrenia said to me, she said, I feel really bad that she had to go through what she went through, but I also recognize that if she hadn't, she wouldn't be who she is today. Mm. And who she is today is the most wonderful, charming, beautiful woman. 
And I think there's really a sense that parents ultimately get to that to that point. And when they do, it's, as I say, a liberation both for the kids and for the parents. It's um, it, it seems like a, something that we also do with somebody. If, if someone in your family has cancer, it seems like at first you reject it. You don't want to go there. And then there's this beautiful evolution that happens when you when you start accepting it and you don't even keep framing them that way. You're kind of beyond that. Um, this is just a stage. This is just life, isn't it? And, you know, you have to be aware. I mean, my my mom died of cancer, and it was tragic. And I certainly don't in any way want to say that that's comparable to the experience of many of the people right, I was no. writing about in my book. But having said that, there were certain intimacies and certain qualities um, that emerged in my relationship with her and my brothers and even my dad, so they'd had a very long and happy marriage. I feel like there was an intensity that got introduced by the process of wrestling with cancer. So would I have chosen for my mother to die of cancer at 58? Certainly not. She no. wouldn't have, none of us would have. But given that we didn't have any choice in the matter, we were then able to find quite a lot of meaning in the experiences it introduced us to. Which is really what it sounds like this is about is um, intimacy, meaning, and and if we're too afraid, I guess, you know, because we've categorized our, our child's differences or disability as something that's not healthy or, I mean, bad, then all of a sudden I'm going to approach that child different than the point where I actually just am willing to risk getting close to them. Right. Hmm. So, it's, I mean, as I say, it's a question of also trying to get rid of some of those um, uh, those words of judgment, right. um, uh, which I think mostly are just destructive. You know, I even yeah. looked at the families, as I said, of people who commit crimes, um, who obviously, you know, the family would not have chosen to have the kids who were criminals. And it's not that the families have to approve of the crime. Right. But if the family spends its whole time saying, my child did something terrible and I can't accept what my child did and so on and so forth, it doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't make the crimes that have been committed go away. It doesn't necessarily prevent future crimes, if you engage with your child and try to understand, okay, why are you like this and what is your experience like, then you have a chance actually at some kind of salvation. Hmm. Is that, and I guess, so help us understand the difference in your mind then between love and that, that level of acceptance. Is that that process of getting to know the situation, you know, from their frame of reference? What's the difference? You know, love is to a large extent a matter of being fully engaged with someone. So um, what they do has an effect on you um, because you love them. It's your child. You want your child to do well. You're full of hopes and dreams for your child. You are willing to make significant sacrifices so that your child can have a rich and good life. But you can have all of that going on, and you can have that feeling of self-sacrifice. You can have that feeling that it just gives you pleasure when you see your child and are in the room with your child and still spend the whole time telling your child what's wrong with him and telling him he has to fix it and feeling discontent and angry because he isn't able to or he doesn't choose to or whatever the situation may be. And acceptance is when you say, possibly you say, this was not what I set out to do, but you are who you are and I'm... I'm thrilled about it. I mean, there was one mother who said to me at one point, I was doing an interview with her, and she said toward the end of it, she said, look, if someone had said to me, Betty, how would you like to give birth to a lesbian dwarf? I wouldn't have checked that box. (laughs) She said, but she's Anna. She's the cornerstone of our family. She's had a very steep path, and she's climbed it with so much grace, and I love her and admire her with all my heart. Wow. I mean, tell me that's not what life's all about. Yeah. 
We just, I mean, tell us more stories. I'm sure interviewing these people, you probably had your mind stretched quite a few times. Do, do any stand out as, as other moments where you thought, wow? Yeah, I mean, there are a number of them that really stood out that way. Um, where even to begin? I know. Um, there is certainly the story of um, uh, the woman who had a child who was transgender and who um, was basically drummed out of the town that she'd lived in, um, in the Deep South, because of this transgender child and had to go move to another town and go into hiding. And she couldn't work in her career field because she didn't want anyone in the new place to know where she'd come from. So she had no references and Mm. she had her life really come apart. And she said to me, and I've sort of read it over so many times and I can pretty much recite it, but she talked about how hard it was. And she said, I don't love my daughter less for mourning over this, but I miss my mom. I miss my sister. My daddy's grave is back there, and I just have to hope other people are putting flowers on it. Um, But if I knew this was going to happen, I would still adopt Kelly. I'm the lucky one, because honestly, if it weren't for Kelly coming into my life, I would have never entered this bigger, more beautiful world where I've met you and so many other wonderful people. And she went on from there, and it just, it was so courageous. She had been through such a trauma, and yet she was still so, um, she was still so connected um, to where she'd come from. That was wonderful. I mean, there was one of the stories that I've now told um, uh, uh, a number of times in talking about the book, but that's still very vivid to me, was a woman who had two children, a woman and her husband, the two of them obviously had two children who were very severely disabled. They had multiple severe handicaps. Um, They couldn't walk. They couldn't talk. But this family was very connected to their children. And the mother always described as a moment of clarity when she had just gotten the diagnosis for her first child. She'd never been very religious. And she said, I want to get him baptized. And her husband said, well, okay, but why? And she said, as a way of asserting that he's a human being, too. Oh, wow. So they did that. And eventually, one of the children tragically died because of caregiver neglect. And when they um, uh, uh, had the internment of that child's ashes, um, the mother said, let me bury here the rage I feel to have been twice robbed, Mm. once of the child I wanted and once of the son I loved. And that, I thought, was a wonderful expression. He wasn't what she wanted, but in the end, he was what she loved. Yeah. Um, that was the that was the voyage. Now, not everyone was able to articulate it in a single tight sentence right. like that. You know, that was pretty amazing. <laughs> that is but amazing. It was a sentiment that I encountered over and over again. And a lot of people who, once they'd gotten there, I mean, I did one chapter because I wanted to look at sort of really deep trauma on families bringing up children conceived in rape. Hmm. And I interviewed one woman who had been brutally raped when she was 16. She had had this baby. She had not been able to finish the education she hoped to have. She never became a doctor. She dreamed her life had been completely turned upside down, and it had been done in a way that was really terrible. Um, And she was very traumatized by it. But when I met her, she was in her 50s. And she had finally made some kind of peace, and she had made peace with the child who came with it. She'd made peace of the whole thing. And I said to her, do you ever think about the guys who raped you? And she said, well, I used to think of them with anger, but now I think of them sometimes with pity. And I said, really, pity? Thinking she meant because they were so uninvolved. And she said, yes, pity. She said, because one of them has a beautiful daughter and two beautiful grandchildren, and he doesn't know that, and I do. And so as it turns out, I'm the lucky one. Wow. I mean, isn't that amazing what the insight that you that you get when you allow your heart to be open enough to create acceptance? Yes. 
And it's a journey. It's a real yeah. journey. And it was an honor and a privilege to get to be accompany these people and part of that journey. It's, it's sacred ground, isn't it? You got to sit there in every one of their stories and kind of notice that sacred space. Yeah. Powerful. Um, we've got a couple more minutes, but tell me how this has impacted your own family, Andrew. You've got four children. Um, what, what have you learned as a dad? You know, I think what I've really learned as a dad is to be more accepting of my children. Now, I say that, and actually this afternoon, my son was being um, <laughs> unusually rude and disagreeable, and I'm not sure that I was being my Squash most accepting him. and That's loving right. self. <laughs> yeah. um, so, you know, try to live by what you Yeah, you, you sound human, Andrew. Uh, oh, no, certainly <laughs> not that. Um, but I really think, uh, in part, it gave me the confidence to have children. You know, I had always wanted to have a family. I felt as a gay person that I might not have a family. I then worried about whether I would be able to love my children and take care of them. And in a way, working on this book, I thought I've met so many parents who loved so many children under such difficult circumstances. And whatever children I have, I'm going to be able to love them for who they are. I think it made me feel much more confident. People kept saying, but you're writing a book about everything that could go wrong. Surely that's turned you off parenting. And I said, no, actually, that's what's turned me on to parenting. It's exactly the opposite. So that was the the experience. And I think with my kids, I try very hard um, to really see them for who they are. And I try very hard to, um, to instill in them a sense that uh, all of humanity is valuable and that there's nobody who deserves to be written off. Um, They don't deserve to be written off, and neither does anyone else. Love it. And, man, we're going to end it on that. That's All of humanity is valuable. Nobody deserves to be written off. Um, And there's so much to learn. There's so much good when we'll open up our hearts. And not just love, but I guess, I mean, love and move our love to a more um, understanding place as well. Everybody go check out Andrew Solomon's website, andrewsolomon.com, and go get that book. You will not be let down. Um, Really, he knows. Far from the tree, parents, children, and the search for identity. Thanks again, Andrew. Wonderful spirit. Appreciate it. And uh, we're going to catch Andrew again when he comes uh, to Utah for a visit. We're going to get him in the studio here. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're going to take a break. Come right back. We're talking acceptance as parents right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. back with the rest of today's Matt Townsend episode. We just finished a touching interview with Andrew Solomon about accepting children who are different from their parents, not expecting them to turn out just like us. I like how they were talking about taking the time to open up your heart and listen to your child and truly strive to understand them. And it will lead to a much deeper love and eventually acceptance. Not just acceptance for who they are, but also acceptance for who you are and where your life is and what challenges you've been given. So this episode is all about acceptance. And we've spent the last little bit talking about accepting others. But before you can accept anyone else, the first person you have to accept is yourself. And I think this is such a vital point that people often overlook. 
So this closing segment is with Shannon Kaiser, and she talks about self-love and self-acceptance. This is, um, it is, it seems like a universal kind of issue where so many people don't, they just don't like who they are. And um, talk to us about that. What, what do you think is behind our dislike of ourselves? Yes, it's so interesting because I think so many of us are walking around. I was for many, many years feeling unworthy. I couldn't look in the mirror and say anything good about myself. And I was writing books about happiness. And I got to a place where I said, well, how happy can you really be if you don't love yourself? So that was like a really big piece that was missing. And I started to do research and I dove into what I call, started as three months, turned into three years, the self-love experiment on why people don't like themselves. And really, there's lots of reasons, but, we, you know, kind of the, the basics is like society will tell us we have to look a certain way. Family has pressure that they put on us, cultural beliefs. Uh, really, it's about coming back to yourself and what the self-love experiment gave me and also teaches readers is that we do belong in a world that's constantly trying to tell us that we're not good enough, pretty enough, smart enough, rich enough, whatever it may be. We are enough. Hmm. It, it really is. It's so needed to to kind of love yourself. I mean, it almost seems like the prerequisite of loving others would be to love yourself enough. And and it seems like also the byproduct of loving others could be loving yourself and vice versa. It's one of the things I know you bring up in the book is it's one thing to, to kind of not to be a self-critic. It's another thing to actually start creating patterns that's where we self-sabotage. Talk about mm-hmm. kind of that that cycle we get into where eventually our self-critique turns into self-sabotage. It can actually keep us from really being present in our life. For many, many years it did for me. I would be out to dinner with friends and I couldn't even be present because I was so focused on the next bite I took would put me over my calorie limit or, or whatever it may be. And so I felt very alone. And I think we first need to kind of recognize that it feels very isolating, and I know for me, I felt like I was the only one in the world who didn't like myself, but this is an epidemic that is going on, so it is so important we talk about it. So that's where we have to start. But then recognize the self-sabotaging patterns are often called secondary gains. So Martha Beck, the life coach, also talks about this. Many of us do these habits, and then we actually beat ourselves up for doing them, such as overspending or binge eating or focusing, you know, picking fights for no reason. What we really want to do is ask ourselves, what is it we really want from what we're doing, the habit that's causing us the most pain? For example, if someone's binge eating a lot, perhaps you really want security or you want acceptance. And so the goal, and I take people through a process in the book, what I call me matters, is to shift your attention to focus on a more positive way to get that need met. And this is one loving act you can do for yourself at a time. And then you'll start to be more kind towards yourself and everyone else. So you break it down into like specific needs um, and then you, you kind of help us build a plan through the process for how to take on that need. Yes, and this is a kind of a step-by-step process. So we really, one of the goals and one of the actual principles in, in the process is to be who you needed to be when you were younger. 
And I think a lot of us, especially between age seven and nine, something happens. It's just part of growing up where we do something that feels normal, whether, you know, you were the kid who drew pictures and people thought that was really weird because you should be an athlete or whatever it was. Um, when I was little, I loved sugar. So the world teachers, my parents said, don't eat ice cream before dinner or whatever it was. And I was so confused by that as a little eight-year-old that I, I shied away from who I really was. And that caused an eating disorder at a very young age. And as an adult, the goal is to go back to that child who was suffering, who didn't get what she or he needed, and give it that love, give it that attention. And that's one way we can heal and start to really accept ourselves as we are now. That's great. Talk about what are what are some signs? I mean, some of us may not even know we have that big of a uh, you know, a, a self-love problem. What are signs that we might be self-sabotaging? There are so many signs, and sometimes we don't even realize it. And one of the main ones, excuse me, the main ones is, for example, self-doubt. Is your self-doubt in control? Is your fear kind of louder than the love voice? And fear and self-doubt exist in the head, and it could say something as simple as, oh, you should have done better today on your show, or you should have done better, said that to your boss. Gosh, I can't believe you. And it's that inner critic that is constantly trying to tell us, hey, buddy, you're not doing good enough. And it could be as simple as looking in the mirror and, and saying something very unkind about yourself. God, I hate that said, or look at my, my hair today. And it's really about the inner voice. And so we want to start there and start to retrain ourselves to be more kind hmm. and that, accepting of us. Yeah. That inner voice, I guess, is the, yeah, it's like the voice of the critic or the I guess the champion, and and if we love ourselves, um, I, I know a lot of what you talk about is this self love is about kind of beliefs, our ingrained beliefs, the the paradigms that we have. Um, so so what are really I guess what you're trying to do is shift a really deeply set belief system. Yes, I say, and I, I realized that going on my own self love experiment was. Actually, not the experiment itself, but learning how to love myself, I felt in the beginning was one of the hardest things I ever had to do because we're not trained how to love ourselves. If your parents didn't love themselves, they don't know what they don't know. And society isn't really saying you need to love yourself. They're saying you need to be skinnier, you need to be smarter, you need to be richer. And so it is this constant battle where we're really going back and forth. One of the, the main things is that we feel like we're not good enough and we kind of keep reaching for something outside of ourselves. I call it the almost paradise syndrome. When I lose weight, I'll be happier. When, you know, when I fix this thing about myself, then I can, you know, start a family. Or We put our life on hold, and that's really the biggest self-sabotager with a lack of self-love. And it really is about saying, what is it that I want for my life and how can I give myself that now instead of waiting? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, a lot of times we get those things. You know, I wanted to lose weight for so many years. That goal number on the scale was the number one thing to make me happy. I got it, and I still didn't like myself. Hmm. And that's when we have to really get honest with ourselves. And is this something that you can – can you be honest with yourself enough um, when uh, – by yourself? Or do you need someone else – to like create the stimulus to to ask the questions like I, I'm I'm thinking that if I'm self sabotaging then I'm probably pretty good in my mind at manipulating my own thoughts and my own beliefs so how does one take on their thinking you know by themselves Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I I truly believe that 
a part of the self-love experiment is really about becoming self-aware. And what I went on was an inward journey that was really personal for me. And, you know, there was a turning point for me in my self-love experiment. I had already been kind of working at it, and I was with my mom, and I was we were having fun just hanging out in her kitchen. And all of a sudden, she mentioned a friend, and they started to, um, something happened within me, I started to cry. A woman in her mid-30s who writes about happiness and coaches people all around the world was crying. And mm. she looked at me, and she said, Shannon, what is the matter? And I said, do you think someone can love me the way that I am? And it was at that moment where I realized that my deepest inner, inner belief was coming to the surface. And so we have to look at our beliefs. But what I was really asking is, do you think anyone can love me the way that I am? But what she said next is actually the most important part of the whole process. And this is what will answer your question. She said, I love you. You're amazing. Don't ever say that about yourself. But then she said, the most important thing is that you're happy. And if you're not happy at this body size, then maybe you need to change your body. And so what I recognized is that that is, I had tried to change myself for so many years. And so by me confining in my mom, she was actually, that was a problem for me because it didn't matter what size I was. The problem wasn't how I looked. The problem was how I felt. Mm. And so we can keep leaning on friends and we can keep saying, hey, honey, do you think I'm fat or do, do you know, and, and address it. But at some point, the answers really are in our heart. The answers really are within ourselves. And so the best thing you can do is really get clear with becoming your own best friend by being there for yourself. Do And I guess we need... It, it seems like your mom was there at a perfect time. Obviously, you had a good relationship, a strong relationship. It also seems like, and I don't know if this was true with your mom, that she could have she could have said things when you were younger that you misunderstood or didn't quite get as an eight-year-old that may have yeah. made it feel more painful. And yet she also seems to be there at this other moment where you're transitioning. I'm so glad you said that because, yes, my mother is one of my best friends. And I think we have to really get honest with sometimes we hear what we need to hear, and or we also hear something that reinforces our insecurity. So as a little child, I saw the way she looked at me or what she said about doing things that, you know, you know, she didn't want me to do. And so when we're little, we often translate things that happen in ways that help create our story. So my story was that I was unlovable, even though I was incredibly loved. I had a great childhood, but I couldn't be loved for who I was or I couldn't be accepted. I was always bullied. So whatever happened in life, I kept feeding that story. So I talk about in my book as well, as adults, how we can rewrite our story to be one of, really be your own hero, be positive and and be kind to yourself. That's great. Again, we are um, speaking with Shannon Kaiser uh, from the website mindbodygreen.com. And uh, she's also um, teaching us and walking us through the self-love experiment. She's an author and uh, an adventurer. She's written many books. One book is Adventures for Your Soul, 21 Ways to Transform Your Habits and Reach Your Full, your full Potential. Um, talk to us also, Shannon, about I mean, a lot of us, because of this lack of self-love and the sabotaging, we we may go down a road where we've made uh, we we've done some pretty difficult things, maybe addictions or disorders, drug or eating disorders, or you know, severe depression. And and um, how do we not carry the baggage of those past choices uh, with us today? How do we learn to let go of those heavy, heavy sabotaging? issues. 
such an important topic. And I, too, I was diagnosed with clinical depression and suffered from eating disorders and drug addictions many, many years ago before I came to the work that I do today. And so the process that I know to work very well, we have to first allow ourselves to recognize that everything really does have a time and place. And it is this is part of the self-love experiment where we have to recognize that our struggles and the things that either we hate about ourselves or the pain, I talk about in part one of the book that there is purpose to the pain. And so the difficult roads lead us to divine destinations. And what this really means is that whatever you're going through is part of a bigger plan while you're in it. There are ways to understand how to move through it. And if you're already in a place where you're saying, I'm ready to heal, then you're absolutely ready to move forward and and learn why those situations are in your life. A lot of times they show up for many different reasons, unhealed childhood wounds, lack of self-love. The truth is once I really discovered self-love and and really started to appreciate myself and understand that there is a purpose to everything, my addictions, my habits, they really transformed. I no longer suffer from any of what was going on in my 20s. And it's it's a process that you can Mm. take yourself on. And really, it's you almost, I guess, can't expect to do it until until you're ready, until you know, until yeah. the student mm-hmm. appears, right? Till the the teacher yeah. won't appear. Yeah, and I talk about that in the book too, because I actually went on my own self love experiment, and I was trying so hard to be ready before, uh, before. So that's why the three months turned into three years, really, because a lot of times when you're ready. It's easy. Think about that time when you had that New Year's resolution, and then five years later, it's the same New Year's resolution, right? You're still trying to make the same thing. Whereas other times, you were able to quit smoking right away without any help from anyone, or you were able to start saving for that house you really wanted. Whatever it is, we are ready, and it will happen, and the universe will really give you everything you need to make it happen when it's truly ready. So the goal and the trick is to not beat yourself up if you're not ready. Just be exactly where you are. And start to train your brain to say, you know what, for today, we did the best we could, and tomorrow we're going to do better. Is that a technique we use, I mean, ineffective as it is, that we think somehow guilting or shaming ourselves might uh, somehow induce us to be more ready to make the change? But you're saying if you're not ready, quit applying the pressure. You're just going to break. Well, that's the key point, the pressure. Take off the pressure, and yes, the guilt and shame – and I talk about as well in the self-love experiment, the problems that we have, we feel the biggest problem is that we think they're the problem. So it causes more guilt. It causes more shame. When we allow ourselves to take off the pressure, it doesn't mean we're giving up and saying, oh, screw it. I just won't try. It's just saying we're taking off the mental pressure and we're still going to show up. We're still going to make healthy choices to the best of our ability. But really, the emotional burden we put on ourselves is the most detrimental thing in our healing process. So I really practice removing that guilt and shame by turning to compassion and love. That's it. That's the self-love experiment. Wow. What powerful segments that we heard today. I love at the beginning of the episodes when Andrew talked about the difference between production and reproduction. Just because we reproduce and have kids doesn't mean that they are going to be replicas of us. They are their own people. And I love the points that Shannon Kaiser made of recognizing what you really want and need from yourself and filling those needs rather than bandaging them with self-destructive habits. So I hope that everyone feels a little kinder today after this and loves themselves a little bit more because like Shannon said, the kinder you are to yourself, the kinder you will be to others. 
Well, thank you for listening, everyone. Join us again tomorrow for another episode of Matt Townsend.